So if they're the friends of Jesus, who are we? <laughs> they're all the friends of Jesus just walked out of the sanctuary. <clears throat> well, good morning and welcome to Faith. Uh, Pastor Stan mentioned last week that July is our prayer focus month. Uh, the messages that we uh, give are seeking to strengthen and encourage worshipers and attenders in the means of grace through prayer. Paul said this in Romans. He said, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And when you think about that charge, to be joyful in hope in the midst of the discouragements and disappointments of life, uh, to be uh, patient in affliction when you are attacked and you feel angry and impatient, well, the way that you are joyful and patient is really through faithfulness and prayer. And so uh, believing in the power of prayer, we're going to spend some time this month. Uh, the scriptures call us to cast or to fling, throw our cares, worries, and anxieties on him because he cares for you, First Peter 5 says. And so we're looking specifically at the prayers in Ephesians, but I think it can rightly be said these are the prayers from the heart of Paul to the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians uh, was a letter that was written to uh, that church, but is understood that it was written to a, a number of uh, churches as a circular letter, pretty much similar to the churches of Asia that we studied not too long ago in Revelation. Theologian pastor Arthur Pink from the early part of the 20th century wrote a book called Gleanings from Paul's Studies and Prayers, and uh, he mentions how encouraging it is to hear some aged saint who has long walked with God and enjoy intimate communion with him, pouring out his heart before him in adoration and supplication. Uh, he's just noting what a blessing it is to hear someone who has really been in deep fellowship with God for a long time. And by the way, uh, that's how I feel when I walk into the prayer room uh, before worship when uh, Vernette, uh, our, our prayer leader in our church, is, is offering prayers to God. Uh, she is uh, a great uh, blessing in this body. But Pink goes on to say, if one of the apostles were still here upon earth, what a high privilege it should be deemed to hear him engage in prayer. Such a high privilege that most of us would be willing to go to considerable inconvenience and to travel a long distance in order to be so favored. So how closely we would listen to his words, how dil diligently we would seek to treasure them in our memories. And then he says, well... No such inconvenience, no such journey is required. It has been pleased by the Holy Spirit to record quite a number of the apostolic prayers for our instruction and satisfaction. Paul wrote twice as many epistles as the other apostles to, all together, but he wrote eight times as many prayers. We have eight times as many prayers in Paul's letters as in all the other apostles. In fact, the very first activity that God notes about the apostle Paul 
uh, when he was introduced in Acts 9, is that he was praying. The Lord told Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. The Apostle Paul was a man marked by prayer. I think we can rightly say that the measure of Paul's ministry and prayer and his service in the kingdom is a direct proportion to his, his, the measure of his prayer life. Paul Miller said this, As we wait and pray, God weaves his story and creates a wonder. And indeed, what a wonder it must have been for Paul to wait on God in prayer. Even though Paul is chained in a prison cell, his soul was free and soaring as he was sensing God using him in the wonders of the advancement of his kingdom. And so let's jump into this second prayer of Paul in the book of Ephesians, starting with verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The word of the Lord. Did anyone here buy a lottery ticket at the Speedway gas station near Interstate 70 with numbers 20, 19, 55, 73, and 8? The mega ball is 5. If you have this winning ticket, you are entitled to 540 million mega million dollar jackpot. You have 180 days to claim it. Now, some time ago, that was the case in Cambridge City, Indiana. And I'm not sure if that was ever claimed. Apparently, about $2 billion in lottery prizes go unclaimed in the U.S. every year. Someone bought the winning $1 million mega million ticket here in Baltimore in a Dundalk Royal Farm store last year and apparently hadn't claimed it. Maybe they stuffed it in a drawer somewhere. The store owner posted signs all around the store to alert the winner. There's an unclaimed ticket out there and time is running out. Lottery officials said they don't know why the winner had not appeared. It seems unimaginable that someone could leave a million bucks on the table. Now, before I move on, 
please hear this. I am not encouraging anyone to play the lottery <laughs> or to engage in any forms of gambling or quick rich schemes. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Proverbs 23, 5 says, cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So that's my commentary on gambling and lotteries. But what... I want you to feel is how unimaginable it is that someone could leave a million bucks on the table, that they would have purchased the winning ticket, that they were in possession of it, but stuffed it in a drawer somewhere and gave no further thought to it. We would say that person is out of their mind. Yet the fact is that so many believers have so much more than a million dollars in their possessions. We possess something far greater than the mega million dollar jackpot, but we don't fully appreciate it. And it's really unimaginable when you start thinking about what we possess. And so here the Apostle Paul has put his sign out in big letters for these Ephesians, for all believers, for us to capture our attention, to shout, as it were, with overflowing enthusiasm in his prayer, look, you need to know about what you have, what is in your possession. You need to know the hope that you have. You need to know the riches of his glorious inheritance that you have. You need to know the power of the resurrection you possess. You need to be caught up into who you are and what you have in Christ, and I am praying that you do. I call this prayer of Paul the gospel-centered prayer. It is about the good news of Jesus Christ for his people, for sinners, for broken people who have become beloved children of God through faith in Christ. There is so much power and grace in this prayer for us. Paul is teaching us through this prayer what gospel-centered or Christ-centered prayer is that we might not only be encouraged but also instructed and directed how to pray in our own lives. But first, gospel-centered prayer. Christ-centered praying begins with praise and thanksgiving. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Before Paul launches into his supplication and petition, he refers back to what he has just been praying, or better, what Paul has been praising God for, for this reason. And last week, Pastor Stan reviewed with us these reasons in the opening letter of Paul, which was literally an eruption of no-holds-barred praise, worship, and blessing of God in the longest run-on sentence that Paul ever prayed, verses 3 through 14. In Colossians, Paul speaks of many similar things, but they are contained sentences. Here, it is as if Paul cannot contain himself in praising God for such manifold, incomprehensible blessing. 
Stan said, Paul is either on his knees or his hands are raised in a posture of worship. Maybe he is even dancing in his jail cell. There in verse 3, Paul erupts, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, and so Paul hearkens back to what he has just said for this reason. And Paul, in a staccato rhythm of uninterrupted praises, catalogs the blessings lavished on believers, chosen before the, to be blameless before time, predestined, to be adopted in love, redeemed, forgiven through his blood of lavishing grace, given the revelation of the mystery to unite, reconcile, and restore all things, granted an inheritance, sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. It really is breathtaking. It is so packed and so massive and so high in its scope. It is like the Mount Everest of blessings ever assembled in one passage of Scripture, I wonder if God had decided to contain Paul in prison so that he would be still long enough to be caught up into one of his surpassing great revelation that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. That the Ephesians and that we might benefit from the immensity and glory of the blessings and the magnificent and comparable benefits of our salvation. And so Paul continues in his intensity of prayerful thanksgiving right before he launches into his supplications and petitions. For this reason, Paul mentions their faith in the Lord. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward the saints. These two things are coupled that he mentions here about the Ephesians. Such faith, such love confirms the evidence of God's work and presence of salvation in their lives for which he, he says, I cannot cease giving thanksgiving because of that. And we should pause for a moment and review again what Paul is giving thanks for. He's giving thanks for their faith. He's giving thanks for their love for the saints, which is evidence of their faith. You know, Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. Faith in Christ, love for the saints are the marks of the true disciple, the true believer, the true church. You know, it's easy for believers and even leaders to value the wrong things in churches. Uh, some have said they are the idols of bodies, buildings, and book accounts that many measure success by. I remember as a young pastor getting somewhat caught up into this. God had blessed us so much with a strong, sacrificially committed body of reconciling believers. But in about the sixth or seventh year, uh, I was struggling with comparing the ministry here with my other peer pastors. Other peer pastors, their churches had grown beyond what was called the 200 barrier. And we were still struggling after six or seven years trying to overcome the, quote, 60 barrier. And I started to become discouraged 
And then there were a lot of transitions. In one year, about 50% of the people had transitioned for one reason or another. Uh, God was bringing others, but I was feeling all of this loss. And then our first convert, the first leader deacon of our church committed suicide. And I remember walking into this pulpit or into this sanctuary and crying out to God. And I said, God, is this what you brought me here for? And I heard in my heart Christ's voice to me, and he said to me, Craig, am I not enough for you? And I was floored. And I had realized how I had lost perspective, how I got distorted in my value systems, and my heart was broken. And God, in that time, recentered me. You know, there's a reason that when it comes to addressing God, that we are encouraged to begin with praise and thanksgiving for what he is, who he is and what he has done among us. In, verse, in Psalm 100, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. It says, enter, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. There is a command, a charge to come into the presence of God with thanksgiving and praise. This should be the first thing. So healthy prayer, gospel-centered, Christ-centered prayer begins with thanksgiving and praise. It orders our hearts and affirms the reality of who God is and what he has done and is doing. And there's a reason that David commands his soul to recall and remember the favor and the blessings of the Lord in his life. In Psalm 103, David, he was a refugee. He had, was literally fleeing for his life for 10 years from the hand of, of Saul. And he lived in the desert, and he lived in foreign countries, and he was a man that was plagued with all kinds of voices screaming at his soul, saying to him that God had abandoned him, that he was only a rebel without hope, that he was unloved. And so by faith, David takes charge of the attacks against his state, and he commands his soul to attention, and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He commanded his soul. He's speaking to himself. He's charging his soul. Stop focusing on the curses and the miseries that sin has brought to this world. God's grace is all around. And he says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed as the eagle. We, we read or heard Isaiah 63 where it says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. It is a determination. Gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered prayer begins with thanksgiving and praise. Jesus-centered prayer begins with praise and thanksgiving. It keeps him in the center. Don't allow the issues and the circumstances of life to take precedent. The forces are strong. And also resist launching into new blessings right off and wants and needs. Give much thought and thanksgiving to the spiritual blessings that you actually already possess. 
John Stott said this, for a healthy Christian life today, it is of the utmost importance to follow Paul's example and to keep Christian praise and Christian prayer together. He says, what Paul does in Ephesians 1 and encourages us to copy is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given us. If we keep together praise and prayer, benediction and petition, we are unlikely to lose our spiritual equilibrium. Now, one of the uh, helpful, simple ways uh, to guard uh, the gospel-centered praying is to take a psalm or to take a section of scripture and read that first and just focus on the means of grace that are, are manifested there. Those are great guides for us to make sure that we are giving God praise and thanksgiving as the first of our prayers. But, so gospel-centered prayer begins with praise, but gospel-centered prayer petitions begin also with illumination. The, the appeal that God's people would have their hearts and minds expand to the grace that they have. And he says in verse 17, 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. To illuminate comes from the word uh, photizo, which is photo, to enlighten, to light up, to give understanding. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be given a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the true knowledge that they might have true understanding and perceive the critical things that are important for their spiritual lives. It is important for us to see that the first order of Paul's prayer requested for the Ephesians was not that they would receive some additional blessing to stop or that, they would, that their suffering would stop or that their persecution would stop or that he was asking the Ephesians, please pray for me to get me out of this prison. Not that these, re these requests are necessarily wrong, but the first order that Paul prays is that they might know that they would have the power to comprehend what they already possess. There is an emphasis that is worthy of our pause here. Paul understands that growth in knowledge is indispensable to the growth in our transformation in the character of Christ. Growth in our knowledge is essential for our growth in holiness. This knowledge is not mere information. It's not just a mental concepts. It's not just philosophy. Paul is leaning on a Hebrew meaning of the word knowledge as something to experience. It is personal. It is growing in a relationship with God himself. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. In the Bible, the heart is that whole inward self. It comprises the mind as well as the emotion, the eyes of the heart. Sometimes people think that faith and reason are incompatible. Not so. Faith and reason, belief and knowledge, are never contrasted or opposed to one another in the Bible. Again, John Stott says, faith goes beyond reason but rests on it. Knowledge is the latter by which faith climbs higher, the springboard from which it leaps further. Knowledge and faith need each other. Faith cannot grow without a firm basis of knowledge. Knowledge is sterile if it does not bring forth faith. Now, the reason 
that at Faith Christian Fellowship, we place such a high value on Bible study in our community groups, in our soul food on Sundays, our Sunday school, uh, Bible devotions, D group in uh, the youth ministry or Bible camp for the children and the friends of Jesus, is that without a growing knowledge of God and the living truths of God's word, our faith will be stunted. And so we need to give ourselves daily to this growing knowledge, and we are grateful to have so many teachers who are seeking to equip our youth and children and our members in the knowledge of God. It requires enlightened hearts, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, which raises a question, by the way. Paul prays that they might have their hearts expanded, their minds expanded, that they might know. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how much time do we spend asking God for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, not only for those that we teach, but also for ourselves as well as we approach the Bible? Do we approach the scriptures as mere academics, thinking that we can comprehend and understand by sheer study? Uh, Ian Bounds, he was a, a Methodist pastor, he he said, God's revelation does not need the light of human genius, the brilliancy of human thought, the force of human brains to adorn or enforce it. It does demand the simplicity, the humility, and the faith of a child's heart. It demands prayerful dependence. But quickly, what focus of knowledge, revelation, and enlightenment does Paul pray for? There's three things, to know him, to know the hope, and to know the power. He says, remembering you in my prayers that the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you would know him, that you would have revelation in the knowledge of him in verse 17. God wants us to know Christ personally, experientially, in a growing relationship. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, right before he was arrested and crucified. This is what he prays. Now, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus wants to be known. The Father and Christ want a deepening, ever-growing relationship. Jesus is not interested in the mechanics of empty rituals of religion. He wants your relationship. Jeremiah 9 says, This is what the Lord says, not, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boast boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. Paul Miller said this, prayer is a moment of incarnation, God with us, God involved in the details of my life. Prayer is asking God to incarnate, to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. For sure we know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word. Ask him. Tell him what you want. Get dirty. Write out your prayer request. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Seize the corner of his garment and don't let go until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. So Jesus wants to be pursued because Jesus is first pursuing you. And that's where we had this passage from, from uh, Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone 
hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking. He is knocking. He's saying, I want to meet with you. I want your fellowship. I want your communion. Will you stop and talk to me? Why do you just keep busying yourself, worrying yourself, engaging in all these superficial things? I'm here. You have the creator of the universe knocking on your door. Anyhow, God wants to be pursued. God wants to be known. We need to ask for the knowledge of him. But he also says, Paul prays that you might also know the hope, the hope, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so Paul moves from personal knowledge to, and the relationship with Christ to a future anticipation of our glorious destiny. You know, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter, and he talks about praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. He talks about this inheritance that is yours. It's in your possession. You don't experience it yet, but it's there for you. It can't be contaminated. It won't corrupt. It won't rust. It won't break down like our cars and our houses and our bodies. Tim Keller's thoughts on hope says, because of Jesus, there's always hope, even in the darkest moments of your life. The whole world is going to be redeemed. Jesus is going to redeem spirit, body, reason, emotion, people, and nature. There is no part of reality of which there is no hope. You and I are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. We are controlled not how we live now, but what we think will happen later. Christian hope has to do with the ultimate future, not the immediate. You know, I think uh, Johnny Erickson, tada is a woman who really has to force herself to hope. Her body is breaking down. She, she, she dove in the Chesapeake Bay when she was 18 years old, and she's been a quadriplegic for approximately 40-plus years. Uh, and even in these last, this last decade, she is experiencing almost chronic, unrelenting pain. And so she is forced uh, to think about the future in ways probably a lot of people just don't. Uh, but she wrote an article actually some time ago, Heaven Can't Wait. And she says, I can't wait for the day when I'm given my brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, comb my own hair, blow my own nose, and what is so poignant is that I'll finally be able to wipe my own tears, but I won't need to because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that God will personally wipe away every tear. There will be no more need to cry. How ironic that finally on the day when I have my hands so I can blow my own nose and wipe my own tears, I won't have to. I look forward to that day. I never used to, to when I was on my feet. 
I thought heaven was pie in the sky by and by. I used to think that it was an escape from reality, a psychological crutch, but no, no, no. Heaven is the reality, and when you have your heart fixed on heaven, it helps you live life better down here on earth. You're able to develop relationships from an even keel. You're better able to discern how more wisely to use your time, how to invest your talents, your gifts. You begin to see that people are what really count in life. Heavenly glories above, patience, peace, perseverance, life values, turned right side up. These are just a few of the things God has shown me in the 26 years since I've been in the wheelchair, and that was many years before. All this is true about hope. But there is another rendering in this passage of Paul about hope that I want to briefly reveal with you. The passage says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you might know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the same? What are the riches of his glorious, it says his glorious, what are the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance? Well, what are the riches uh, of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Well, we find in the scriptures, it says this in Zechariah, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. It says in Deuteronomy 32, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. Revelation ends in chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will, wipe, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What is his inheritance? What is Christ's glorious inheritance? It's you, believer. It's his church. You are the delight of Christ. You are the apple of God's eye. You are his treasured possession. You are his royal priesthood. You are his inheritance. You are God's glorious inheritance. He is so in love with you. He thinks about you all the time. He wants communion with you. He can't stop thinking about you. A lot of times, we just think God is very distant that he doesn't know what's going on in my life and why is this happening to me and what's going on and he is far away. But let me tell you that the scriptures tell us and Paul reinforces to us that you and I, even though we were rebels and enemies of God under his wrath, he through Christ beloved us through his blood and we are now his beautiful bride. He is perfecting his bride and he loves us to the depths. You are his glorious inheritance. You know, it's good to have one service. I have a little bit more time. I know I'm taking a little more time. But I'm going to close here in a, in a minute. He also asked us that we would know the power 
what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so Paul is saying, you have the resurrected power of Christ at your possession. You not only need to think about the future destiny, your glorious destiny, and how beloved you are, but in this world, in the midst of all of the trials and tribulations, and in the midst of all the challenges that you face, you have power. You have the same power that God rose Jesus from the dead. The same unbelievable wonder-working power that stopped the corruption and that brought life back into a dead corpse. You have this power. That's what Paul is saying. Do you know what power that you have? And so Paul wants us to live in that power. You know, I think about uh, in 2 Kings 6, there was the story of uh, Elijah uh, who was telling the king of, uh, of Israel where the king of Aram was raiding. And, uh, and so the king of Aram, Aram was getting really upset because, uh, he, because Elijah was telling him all the secrets. And, the, and, and, and Aram thought that there were spies around him, and, and his leaders came around him and says, no, 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 king. Uh, he tells the very words you speak in your bedroom, <laughs> Elijah. And so he was determined that he was going to send the forces to capture and kill Elijah. And in the process, uh, Elijah was at this a place called Dotham, and uh, they sent horses and chariots. Uh, but this is what he says. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And it's, it's Elisha. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open the eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And Psalm 68 says, The chariots of God are ten thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands. The Lord has come from the Sinai into his sanctuary. You have this power of the Lord of hosts who has these angels all around. Uh, do you know the power that you have? And so Paul encourages them to know this power. And finally, he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. And so finally, gospel-centered prayer prioritizes the church. He brings the church in here. You know, why did Paul bring the church in here? You know, the church is just a messed up group of people. You know, it's full of sinners and hypocrites. That's what a lot of people say. And if people say that, you could say, well, just come and just, you can be one more. <laughs> but it's interesting here that it says, and he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him head over all things for the church. Uh, for the church. Eugene Peterson says, the church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. You know, I had heard recently a brother said, I don't know, I, why don't I, 
why do I need to even go to church? Uh, Harold Camping, a former radio preacher, said the Holy Spirit's left the church and that Christians shouldn't go to church anymore. But this is what we find in Luke. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. It was Christ's custom to be in the assembly of God's people. Um, I know that many have been wounded in church, but here's what you need to know. Jesus loves a messed up bride, and he is committed to a messed up bride, and he wants to make this bride more beautiful. And you, if you're a believer, you need the bride to help you to grow and to become who God has called you to be. And we need to continue to strive uh, to perfect this bride and to bring reformation to this bride. As messed up as we are, we need each other. I remember my professor said, men, be careful how you talk about the bride of Christ. I'll never forget those words. And so what we find here is that Christ is in love with his bride and that he has done all of this for his bride. You need to know what you have in Christ. You need to know the hope that you have. You need to know the power that you have. You need to know the Christ that you have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us uh, this this great uh, eruption of praise and petition and thanksgiving from Paul and his prayer for your church. Lord, there's so much in this, and it's somewhat hard to even grab hold of it. I pray, Lord, that through your spirit that you would take Paul's words and the words that are true from this passage, and you would sink these deeper into our own hearts and lives, that, God, we would live with an awareness of what we have in you, what we possess, uh, more than a mega million jackpot. Lord, you have given us eternal glories. And uh, Lord, you've given us the power of the resurrection. So God, bless your people and bless us as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.